Hello, Liturgy Guy listeners. This is your host, Jesse Weiler, and we have another great episode for you. This week, we are talking about the priesthood, and what better way to talk about the priesthood than to have an actual priest on the podcast with us. So this week, we are very blessed to have Father Connor Danstrom of the Archdiocese of Chicago sitting down with us and talking about what it's like being a priest, not only in the day-to-day, but then also in terms of the liturgy as well. And you might recognize him from the popular podcast, Three Dogs North. You can find that at www.threedogsnorth.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at Three Dogs North. So without further ado, episode 46 of The Liturgy Guys. Enjoy. I'm going to talk to you today about the Mass. The liturgy is what enculturates the gospel for us. What are you, some kind of altar boy? And, and it enculturates it into our day-to-day life, our, our day-to-day existence. It's pretty dang exciting, huh? We're called not to some crapshoot called life, but to an adventure in fidelity that beckons us to cast out to the deep. The Liturgical Institute is proud to present The Liturgy Guys. Did you know that really Abraham are. Lincoln parted his hair on the wrong side and it made him look like an evil person and then he started parting it on the other side and he looked like a better person? Is that when thing. he started winning? I think so, actually. Huh. Which, which side is the correct side? To not look evil. Well, when you part your hair, you're looking in the mirror. So you're looking at yourself yeah. the opposite of the way people look at you. Yeah. So you, mm-hmm. your part should be on your left. So whatever you think you look best at, is probably you should do it the opposite way. Oh, it's not like one side or the other is right. It's right. Wow. Huh. Good to know. These are what if you look equally good no matter what you do? Well, that's because you're slicking your hair back and you probably are just a criminal. These are tips for the new evangelization, Connor, <laughs> Father Connor. If you part your hair on the right side, people will love you more and come to Jesus more easily. Mm-hmm. Now, what part of the sea did Moses part it? Because that may depend. I mean, well, mm-hmm. he looked in the mirror and he parted See, this is, are we recording this? This is gold. <laughs> yes, okay, we are. Good. <laughs> Are we and the that? podcast is over. I think that's all. We, I think we <laughs> that's did all it. we have time for. This today. is the way every podcast starts by saying, "Are, am I, are we recording?" Oh, please yes. don't do that. Why? <laughs> okay, I did it three times, and did now what? are we recording? Day. Oh my gosh! All right, <laughs> irritating Jesse is one of my favorite things to do on this podcast. So, what did you guys decide that you wanted to talk about? We're talking about priesthood. Okay, and it's high and it's low, and we decided we needed a priest with us this time. Okay, so we have a priest here with us this week. Uh, we have Father Connor Danstrom. Father Connor, yes. That is from the Three Dogs North podcast. Right, so we have one dog with us. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm technically I'm a dog, although I'm not a Three Dog North. You're half, you're half a dog. Well, so we have yeah. one and a half dogs. Which half? No, the bottom half, obviously, half. right? Yeah. <laughs> the, best half. the outside half. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and Father Connor and I have been friends since you were, what, in pre-theology? You were a lowly mm-hmm. nobody. Was that eight years ago when you started here? Wow. And uh, you've been a priest for two years now, right? Almost. I will years. have been a priest for three years. Three years. In seven days. Oh, man. Well, happy almost anniversary. How many, how many hours? Uh, I haven't counted those. It's okay. a lot, though. Yeah. You okay. know, the thing about priesthood is people, I think just everybody wants to beat up on priests for whatever reason in the, in the culture. But think about the job description. Six days a week or more, all day long, almost every night, your job is to pour out your life for every other person who will make demands on you in their life, their death, their birth, their wedding. And priests oftentimes don't get a lot of appreciation. Yeah, all I have to do is change diapers. So I think you picked the wrong path. But And pretty much most priests 
are paid in the twenties, twenty thousand dollars something thousand a year, and uh, it's, it's a lot of work. Well, their reward is in heaven. Well, Dennis. of course, yeah, mm-hmm. I know, but we didn't get into this for the money or the women. <laughs> and I hear you're succeeding on both counts. So that's, that's good. Yeah. That's very good. I'm succeeding and like, not getting into it for the money. That's, it reminds me of a Steve Martin joke because he studied philosophy. And he's supposedly a very erudite guy, and uh, he said that he. I almost use this as my senior quote that getting into or studying philosophy to get at the truth is like becoming an archbishop to meet women. (laughs) (laughs) Probably most philosophy departments. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. What would would you think is the most um, common misconception people have about priests in your experience? Most common misconception? I mean, everybody has the pious old ladies and they'll love you no matter what you do, but that you're, you know, you're a young guy, you're out doing things. Yeah, I would say that, um, well, on a day-to-day basis, especially people from my generation, I was just talking to a couple guys last night about this because I was recently profiled at uh, my parish by this guy who is doing this project in in town, like uh, highlighting local musicians and local artists and stuff, and he asked me to play guitar, which I do, and I played, you know, not popular music, I'm not into the mainstream popular music but you know folk rock indie rock stuff oh i think i saw that uh, sufjan stevens i played a sufjan song and music that i like and it just got all this reaction from people like wow i didn't know you played and you know people find it kind of strange that you do normal things and you engage the culture that you're part of it's sort of like giving lectures in an academic setting. You could make the most lame joke in the world. At oh, the yeah, the standard. And you get laughed because... Yep. I should it. become an academic. I'm <laughs> great at that. No one expects it. Mike Verbiggio, a, a, a popular stand-up comic, said his first, the first thing he ever wanted to be was a priest because they got such easy laughs. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but uh, no, that's the a kind of misconception that I read is not so much about the priest, but, but about God in general, is that... The church, God, and daily life don't really mix, right? And so if they see a priest playing wiffle ball or playing guitar, they're like, wait, that's a, that's a thing that I see as normal. And the church, as a representative of the church and God, you can't be doing normal things. You can't things. be normal. So, uh, I mean, it's a, a distinctively Catholic thing that we believe in the incarnation and specifically the sacramentality of the incarnation that God is in daily life and in the normal things that he's right here recording this podcast with us, you know, that he speaks through us and priests can't do podcasts. Dude, you podcast. <laughs> I thought you were a priest. Do you even podcast, bro? <laughs> podcast P A D. So I, I think that that's the biggest misconception about the priesthood and, um, sort of the, Catholic worldview in general. Are these people, you said, kind of in your age range that are having mm-hmm. that misconception? Okay. Yeah, and so, I mean, it's not just localized to our age range. Um, the old ladies, when they see me wearing jeans on my day off, they're like, what? You know. <laughs> is that even possible? You own other clothes? <laughs> One of their favorite pastimes is telling me I look like a teen. You look like a teenager. <laughs> well, enjoy it while you can. Yeah. Well, that is the funny thing about Catholicism. You know, I think people get it wrong in two ways a lot. One is they either hyper-spiritualize things. Oh, if you're a priest, you must be so spiritual. And they under, um, what do you say, like materialize things. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we are matter and we have to encounter things through matter. How else is God going to communicate to people who communicate through their five senses? It has Mm -hmm. to come through the senses and senses perceive material things. So I'm looking at you and your calcium and carbon and water and 
muscle, lots of muscle, mm-hmm. and, and you're uh, how much muscle am I, Dennis? <laughs> you're a lot of muscle too. Okay, thanks. <laughs> and but, yet, that's what God uses to make Himself known to us. Yes, and and my one of my mos is to uh, I remember hearing a priest tell me this when I was in college that a kid from his school wrote you know how they write you letters and stuff like that on Father's Day or, or whatever. And one of the things that a child had written was that father is very funny except when he's saying mass. That's a great compliment. <laughs> and I thought that's kind of an idea. I was probably 20 when I heard that, but that seemed to me like an ideal worth striving for is oh. that you take, you take the right thing seriously, but you don't take yourself very seriously. Right. You would hope people would love you and, and know that you have their good in mind. And that means sometimes you're lighthearted and fun at the parish mm-hmm. you know, picnic. But then when it comes to do serious business, you're not goofing around with their dead loved ones and their confessions and that kind of stuff. Exactly. Why would you suppose that that's really hard for people to understand that the fact that, you know, the material and the spiritual can be seamless in that way and that you can enjoy things like, quote unquote, a normal person with joy. What, what do you think the disconnect is there in our culture that people, I mean, that explains why people see things that way? Oh gosh, that's a deep question because I think our culture, like American culture, is like by and large, America. by and large, uh, influenced by Protestant uh, soteriology, work ethic. Um, Define soteriology for us. With the theology of how we're saved. Okay. So um, by faith alone would be sort of the blanket umbrella for Protestant Christianity and. Therefore, how do you prove that you're saved to yourself and to others is by, you know, working hard, being blessed with prosperity and not swearing and et cetera, et cetera. So the Catholics have always sort of been looked down upon as the ones that drink alcohol and have feasts and and things like that. Mardi Gras leads to Ash Wednesday. We, we're kind of a religion of extremes because we um, baptize it all, you know, the feast right. and the fast, the the joys and the sorrows. Uh, and there's a certain sense of like, if you are spiritual, or if you're close to God, then you will be this sort of, um, you will have this laser-like sort of focus on um, just heaven. You won't think about daily earthly life. Um, but so, priests in a sense are set apart. I mean, I, in preparation for this, I was looking at the document from Vatican II, which is very hard to say in English. It sounds like a I, car. I can say it. Vatican too. <laughs> no, oh, not that. Okay. It sounds like a car that won't start. Presbyterorum, Presbyterorum Ordinis, mm-hmm. which is about priesthood, you know, and priesthood in the modern world. But it, it lays out this thing. It says priests are taken from among men, which makes sense. But it says they're set apart in certain sense in the midst of God's people. They have to be separate so that they can be prepared to then go back and know the people. How does that, how does that happen in your life? Um, yeah, well, that's kind of what I was leading to with the, the extremes of Catholicism is that at one, at one and the same time, I am daily reminded that I am an ordinary human being, human male, what I like to call the most dangerous animal in the universe, mm-hmm. um, the human male. And, but at the same time, have this extraordinary calling and what, you know, theologically we'd understand as an ontological brand just like baptism and confirmation leave a sacramental character, so ordination does, onto into eternity. And so my life is characterized by these really sublime things, like that I absolve people's sins or that I confect the Eucharist. Um, 
even the way people relate to you on a human level is often kind of sublime. They'll share things with you um, without really knowing you. They did, your first name to them is just father, but because of what you represent and who you stand in for, they relate to you in that way. Um, so yes, I feel very much like part of the human family, yet uh, have a specific role that I didn't choose uh, and would not probably have chosen if I had listed out my, uh, you know, my skills or, or whatever and said, oh, that, you know, with a college counselor said, I think I might have to go into the priesthood because I have these skills. Would have been last on the list if it made the list. So I yeah. don't think the priesthood is on that list because I've, I've taken that test. <laughs> <laughs> it's not an option. Right. <laughs> well, Vatican II, in that same, you know, same document, says uh, this special title forbids them, that's priests, to be conformed to this world, yet at the same time it requires them to live in the world and to know their sheep. That must be something that's kind of hard to balance. You want, yeah, no pressure. You want to know your sheep, but at the same time, it's sort of like a dad can't be a kid. Like mm-hmm. The dad can't go out and play in the backyard. He's got to go to work. Got to make sure everybody's fed. I don't like that at all. <laughs> right, Jesse was about to have <laughs> died two times over. Oftentimes, Agnes and I both have to ask him for permission to do something together. So but there you go. But you know, if your kids are afraid Mom, of you, can we go outside? <laughs> <laughs> just one more, just one more time, please. <laughs> but if your kids are afraid of you, you're not, you know, not being a dad. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, you have to not compromise who you are. As a, the, the master image to me is leaven, like this little small thing, which is different than what surrounds it, but by being what it is, lifts up the elements around it. Um, and the priest, I can't remember where I read this, but um, that the priest, if there's no one else in town who is praying, the priest is praying. You know, if, the, if no one else in town is sort of aware of um, the presence of God and the divine calling, that we have, then the priest is the is the vehicle through which God speaks to His people. Um, so, for instance, uh, you know, Pope Francis was big on this, especially at the beginning of his pontificate about don't stay in your sacristies, get out, you know, get out to the margins and an outward looking church. Uh, so long as it's not at the expense of, um, you know, you don't want to smell like the sheep in the sense of. Uh, Stinking of sin, you know, (laughs) you don't, you don't, you want to still look distinctive just as any Christian should in the world look distinctive by the way they live their life, by the way they treat one another, by the way they speak, um, and act and worship. Uh, so for instance, I'm, I go to the bar and play the open mic night, you know, uh, but I leave by nine 30. I'm not going to stay on a Saturday night till two in the morning with the people, you know, Jesus was accused of eating and drinking with sinners, but I don't imagine that he was accused of getting drunk and sinning. He didn't sin with the sinners. Right. He was a witness to them. So that's, that's true of not just of the priesthood again, but of of every Christian. And that's the calling you have. And interestingly, Um, Vatican II says the job of a priest is to uh, add to the glory of the father. And that consists of men freely, knowingly, and gratefully accepting God. Oh, I thought you were going to say that the Vatican laid out how many drinks a priest can have and how many hours. Okay, good. No, no, no. More more principles. (laughs) Depends on how much they cost. (laughs) It's always free for a priest, right? (laughs) But I think sometimes people can say, oh, the church keeps saying what I can't do. It's a a party of no, you can't do this, can't do that. Well, sometimes, you know, in in mastery of anything, you can't do things that get in the way of the mastery of something. So there must be a job for the priest sometimes to say no, but more often to say yes to the bigger, more important thing. Mm-hmm. Well, and also, I mean, let's not confuse alcohol with inherent sin in of itself. I mean, alcohol is 
it can be a good thing. I mean, you were just talking earlier about we baptize both. We, you know, we have a different mentality than culture when it comes to those, you know, both, you know, extremes of the culture. So, you know, alcohol in of itself is not bad. It's amoral, but it's what you choose to do with it. I mean, and and how you choose to use it that could be bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, we had, uh, who was that, Dr.? Foley. Dr. Foley came out uh, to the Liturgical Institute, and he did a whole lecture about drinking with the, about drinking with the drinking saints with the called. saints. And he talks about the liturgy of drinking with the saints, and how just a toast can be something liturgical with drinking with the saints. And he can t- and he talks about how solemnities, uh, you know, have different. You you can treat solemnities differently by maybe having you know a nicer whiskey that night because it's a solemnity because it's something that we're celebrating and so you can use those to show beauty truth and you know goodness you just can't go to a slummy bar and get drunk all the time there's there was a podcast on art of manliness about they highlighted some author who was talking about liturgy in the secular sense that um we are we're just ritual animals and uh you, you step into a shopping mall and that's liturgical because what is a liturgy but the, um, a ritual you go through to, to form in yourself a vision of the good life, what the purpose of life is, why you're here. And uh, like I said to people who say, I don't go to mass because I don't get anything out of it. I say, well, that's like saying I don't go to school because I don't know how to read. So I can't really <laughs> do the school things. You don't, you don't, go to mass because it fulfills some psychological need, but because you're being formed into a person that sees the world a certain way, sees yourself and others and God a certain way, and then acts like it. Um, and so of course that you go into every aspect of what you do that at the source and summit of your Christian life should affect everything down at the foothills of your Christian life when you go out into the world. And um, so, yeah, you're being formed whether you know it or not to know to think what the good life is and to go after whether it's money or power or pleasure or people's opinion of you or, or whatever. Um, so yeah, I remember actually speaking of the alcohol thing, I remember there was some talk when I was in college or seminary that there was a beer blessing and it could be done by deacons, I think. Did you know anything about this? No. The book of blessings? Never heard of that. So there, there could literally be liturgy happening when you order your Guinness. Uh, wow, do you know that one by heart? No, I've never, I've never actually blessed a beer. <laughs> well, we bless our food before meals, why not our Yeah, exactly. Huh. Well, you know what you were talking about, going to Mass, not getting it out, anything out of it. It, it just it got me stirred up because, you know, everybody has the thing they think that, every, that they know that everybody should know. And one of the ones that I'm hot about is this whole rediscovery in the 20th century that, the, that real participation in the liturgy was offering yourself as a victim with the priest who's offering the victimhood of Jesus Christ, which is weird. We don't like the word victim because it, you know, victim is the opposite of what everybody wants to be these days. But Christ's victimhood is a victim who rises from the dead. So he conquers um, victimhood. But at the same time, that victimhood is the process by which he gets resurrected. And so our job is to be part of that. And the priest's job is to offer sacrifice, that sacrifice of Christ. Pius X said active participation was offering yourself as a victim on the patent with the priest. Hmm. And the priest is offering himself as Christ, the head. And so the priest's job really is to head up the sacrifice, not as, you know, God is some angry, faraway power who wants to destroy us, but that we're separated from God in some way by our sin, sinfulness. And the way you get reunited is 
through the bridge of Christ and the way you encounter that is would that be the pontifex Dennis he is the pontifex Maximus right the great bridge builder I am learned now and the priest's job is to be the kind of and what do people do to bridges they step on them they draw them oh sorry they burn bridges on their way out that's what they do (laughs) but you know right here in Vatican II which we all think is like the the modern hippie document if you don't read it properly uh, it says the priest must instruct the people of God to offer to God the Father the divine victim and uh, to offer their own lives. And nobody, I think very few people do that. I mean, you're, I mean, you're in the parishes, I don't really know. But your job is to put yourself on the altar, get yourself back glorified. And if nobody does that, well, maybe that's partly why they don't get anything out of Mass, or they don't think they do, because mm-hmm. they're not doing the thing that Mass is meant to do. I don't want to be victimized, Dennis. Right. I don't want to surrender my will. I want to be in charge of me. I don't want to surrender my heart. I want to decide what I like and don't like. I don't want to surrender my mind. I want to think the way I think. But you know what? If you give your fallen self to God, you get yourself back glorified. And he needs the hands of the priest to do it. And in some ways, that's like, good. You don't get anything out of the mass. Great. Go. And then you will automatically be uh, swimming against this stream of uh, sort of the ego centric world where I just do whatever I feel like. I mean, you don't treat your job like that. And hopefully you don't treat your family like that. Well, I don't get anything You're out right. of it. I don't do that. <laughs> I don't get anything out of getting going to work. So I'm just going to not go or I don't get anything out of uh, doing the dishes and helping out at home. So I'm not going to go. It's like, no, life is made of sacrifices. And what it, uh, I was just hearing, I think Matthew Levering, our professor here at Mundelein said that in a world gone wrong, love always looks like sacrifice. Hmm. Because, because of the disease in us uh, of turning in on ourselves and making the world this grand larceny of making the world about me rather than about God and glorifying him requires me to die in order to be reborn so that I can live uh, the right way. And uh, I, so like the rubrics and the, and the words of the mass, part of why I take so seriously those actions and those words and saying them exactly the way that they're meant to be said is because it's an oblation of my will. This is a thing that I do today that I did not choose in any way. I'm completely submitting to uh, something much, much bigger and much, much more important than my preferences or my tastes. Uh, This is the sacred synaxis. This is what could be more important and therefore have nothing to do with what I happen to want on this day at this time. Right. And the more you do your own thing, the less you help people to give up themselves. Because mm-hmm. all they're interested in is why you're leaving the norms of the Mass. Right. And then instead of saying, I put myself on the altar, they say, why is Father Connor being a jerk? Mm-hmm. Nobody ever says that about you, I know. No one ever says no that one about ever me. Says that. Dennis has never said that when you are not sitting in this room. <laughs> no, no, Father Connor and I have been what, um, good friends I, for a long time. I, I'm curious to hear your perspective. This is actually the first time we've had, well, we had Bishop Barron on here. We right. talked about his um, bishop uh, stuff. Yeah, bishop stuff. Um, but liturgically speaking, from your perspective as a priest, um, can you give us some insight as to what's going on there? Um, the majority of our audience is our laity, but you know, I've learned a lot here from the Liturgical Institute about all these things that are dialogues between the priest and the people. Could you maybe offer a little of your perspective from the priest's point of view about maybe some of those dialogues and something else that you know is happening in the liturgy from your end? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm keenly aware of the fact that most of the liturgy is not directed at the people, but at God the Father. 
uh, like the entire Eucharistic prayer, most of the preface besides the Lord be with you and lift up your hearts. Amen. Um, Hallelujah. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> so I, I honestly don't look at the people very much. Um, I'm looking at the book or sort of up at a spot on the top of the ceiling or the clock. <laughs> Except when you have words to say to the people, right? Exactly. Yeah. So for instance, and, and it does highlight for me what words actually are said to the people. And the one that strikes me the most every time I say mass is, pray brothers and sisters that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God, the almighty father. And then they're saying things, but they're not, unlike most of the prayers of the mass that the people say, they're saying it to me. May the Lord accept a sacrifice at your hands for the praise and glory of his name, for our good and the good of all his holy church. And hopefully they are standing right before they say that. Not I, I just let them do whatever they want. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Chris Carson isn't here today because he's home in Wisconsin, but he wrote a, a book called Mystical Body, Mystical Voice, and he talks in part of it about the different voices in Mass. So sometimes you're, the priest is speaking as Christ. May, uh, you know, may Almighty God bless you. That's your voice hmm. as Christ. Sometimes the people are speaking as themselves. They're singing the Gloria as themselves. Sometimes the Eucharistic prayer is very clearly the voice of Christ. Sometimes they speak to you. Sometimes you speak to them. So there are a lot of different voices. And I think we always think that it's the priest talking to the people and the people talking to the priest. But a lot of times it's the priest and the people as one body mm -hmm. talking to the Father. That's the Eucharistic prayer. Mm -hmm. And so you see people sometimes, priests will speak the Eucharistic prayer to the people in the pews, even, and maybe even just like say, take this, all of you, and eat it nope, over their hand from side that. to side, as if they're saying it to the people. But it's not. It's the people and the priest together saying it to the Father. And it's an anamnesis. It's a remembering, like... The, we forgetful creatures need to not remind God the Father, hey, do you remember that night when uh, he was <laughs> betrayed and he, awesome. he said, uh, this is my body? Um, I mean, it makes no, if you read the text, it makes no sense as a play, you know, where, where I'm acting it out and I'm, hey, I'm going to be Jesus for a little bit and I'll, I'll say this all to you guys. Um, no, it's all of us together remembering so that we don't forget uh, what it cost God to save us. Right. And he then, doesn't need to be reminded. Exactly. We need to be reminded. And in, in the remembering, just as a, the Passover uh, was a anamnesis, a remembering that makes present right. the reality uh, that you're remembering. So, it, boom, miracle. He's there and still crucified, still risen, still saving us, still pouring out his blood and his body for our salvation. So, yeah, man, conform yourself to that. Um, and the way you do it is you put yourself on the altar with your mind and your will and your heart. Just it's hard to do for the fourth time during a day, but I try to stay pretty present. Well, not just you, but everybody, you know, all the people in the pews too. We put this bread on the altar, right? It's going to be destroyed because it's not going to be bread anymore. The bread is giving itself up. It's breadness in some sense, you know, at the level of its substance is going to disappear forever. But what comes back? This glorified bread. You know, what's going to disappear if I put myself on the altar in that prayer, my sinful, broken self? I'm pretty ready to get rid of that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to lose myself. I'm going to get myself back. Yeah Chris, glorified. Said, yeah, Chris said something really interesting at our uh, Young Adult Liturgy Conference that I've heard before, but it was nice to be reminded. He said, any other type of food that you eat, the food becomes part of you. But then when you consume the Eucharist... You, you are conformed to the, you, you become more like right. Christ. Through that's St. Augustine. St. Augustine said that. Yeah. Uh, I this think it was Chris Karsten. Yeah, so I'm, I don't want to miss, yeah, but, you know, I heard it from Chris, so. No, he said, he said it too. Yeah. <laughs> There's nothing new under the sun. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, that's a very, you know, vivid image for me to help understand what's mm -hmm. actually happening there. Right, and I think since 
you know, Trent or since the Reformation, we're very interested in transubstantiation. You know, is it the presence of God or not? And we kind of forget the offering part. We don't, it's not just please turn this into the Eucharist, God. It's here's the body your son gave up and we're giving it to you again. Here's the blood your son gave up. And we're mm-hmm. giving it to you again. And here's me. <laughs> so yeah, I could mm-hmm. say this is my body and this is the chalice of my blood, but I don't. I say this is my body, which will be given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood, blood of the new and eternal covenant which will be poured out for you and for many. So it's like those words after that this is my blood, I think in the old Latin Missal, the only big fat all caps words were uh, hocus enum corpus meum, and then the other part wasn't. But in the current Missal, it's all big bold, all, every word of it, and it makes it very clear that it's a sacrifice uh, being offered again. Right, and isn't the rubric there that the priest is supposed to bow slightly? Lean over? Mm-hmm. Yeah, do you know where that comes from? Um, I'm not, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but. I'm guessing but what I always imagine, did. what I always imagine is I'm saying the words right, like the breath is going into the chalice. Right. Um, God breathes across the water. So mm-hmm. that's how re- things are made. Or so I was right. Well, that's one of the story. I don't have a footnote on this. That's one, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the other one that I've heard is that the job of a, of a delivery person in the old days, like a messenger, they came in and they could say, Hey, I'm here. And they'd be talking about themselves. But if they say, Hey, I declare war on you, it's not him it's the king who sent him hmm. and the way they distinguish that is that they would bend over at the waist oh gosh, and they I would speak that. the words that meant they were speaking the words of somebody else mm-hmm. and so you're not speaking your own words at that point you're speaking the words of christ who you know let it be known internet across and you know that's the kind of thing that i would think a lot of priests would say oh you know fussy rubric i'm not mm-hmm. gonna you know bow at that moment but when you really think about what are you doing you're you're adding another level of knowable sacramentality to mm-hmm. what the people in the pews can participate in, which is sort of the goal of all this. So they know what's going on. There's a beautiful line, you know, in Eucharistic prayer one, which doesn't get said too often, sadly, cause it's so long, but that may your altar take, may your angel take the mm-hmm. sacrifice to your altar in heaven. Wait, that's a profound bow. I think when you do that part. Oh really? Okay. Yeah. And uh, for our listeners who don't know, no, I'm kidding. What, but, so what is the, the, so we have a profound bow and a slight bow. They're two different things that mean two different things. Yeah, I think, I believe the rubric, um, those listening at home can check for the consecration. <laughs> All of our listeners are sitting <laughs> home with the rubric. They're Send like, us a liturgy guide question, <laughs> liturgy question about that. That it says that the consecration, the priest bows slightly and says, this is my body. Um, take this all of you and eat. And then at the point that Dennis is talking about in the first Eucharistic prayer, after the consecration, there's what's called the hunk egitur, therefore, et cetera, et cetera. And it, that's usually the second, ep, what's called the second epiclesis happens in that time where you call, you've called down the Holy Spirit on the elements of bread and wine. And then the second epiclesis is uh, the Holy, calling down the Holy Spirit on the people who, were, who received this consecrated uh, Why wouldn't you do that prayer every time? That sounds awesome. Oh, it's in every Eucharistic prayer. The second epiclesis oh, is always okay, there. It is, so okay. if you see priests celebrating a mass, oh, um, that's when the, they, the, they will all say together from the point of the first epiclesis on to the end of the second epiclesis. So after in the second Eucharistic prayer, for instance, um, therefore, Father Most Holy, I forget what exactly, but make us one spirit, one, one body, one spirit in Christ. That's the end of the second epiclesis. And then the the one celebrant or another celebrant will say individually, and we pray also for our Pope and for our, our Bishop, et cetera, et cetera, the dead in communion with all the saints. Mm-hmm. So um, what was I saying? The second well, epiclesis? We were talking about the, uh, the profound bow. Oh yeah. So during the one in Eucharistic prayer one, it's, uh, this is my dad's favorite part of any prayer in the mass, by the way. And so he, I remember when I first said mass 
in the home after my ordination. My dad was very excited. My whole family was, but I made sure to use. <laughs> Only my dad was excited. <laughs> but I made sure to use Eucharistic prayer one because, uh, yeah, may your angel bear these gifts to your altar in heaven, so that we who participate at this altar and receive the most holy body and blood of your Son, something like may become one body, or may be filled with every grace and heavenly blessing. And he makes the sign of the cross as he gets up from his profound bow, um, asking for this. So. Yeah, that's what a profound bow is from the waist. Wait, so the laity or the congregation are supposed to have a profound bow? No, no, no just, just the, the priests. priests oh, like, okay, and the priests. okay, got it. Uh-huh. But you know, that line made your angel take the sacrifice to your altar in heaven. That, I think in many ways that kind of sums it up. We're doing this earthly thing and we're mm-hmm. sensate and making noble in a sensate way something going into the presence of God. And so the earthly altar is a sacrament of the heavenly altar. It's not just us, but angels are involved. And we say, okay, take this thing and put it on kind of this heavenly train, <laughs> this train uh-huh. to heaven, transform it, glorify it, and bring it back. And you can do it with the bread and wine where you can you can jump on that caboose yourself and say, "I please take me too. You I know? never thought we'd say caboose on this podcast. Well, we, we have now. Have. So, <laughs> all right, you can sit in the first class oh uh, passenger seat like they do on Downton Abbey if you oh want. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> By the way, uh, uh, Father <laughs> Danstrom, I'm going to start a band. Would you like to be in it? It's going to be called Second Epiclesis. Yeah. I think that's a great band name. Mm-hmm. Is, is, there it, a third is it just epic? a tribute band to Epiclesis? Yeah, absolutely. You've never heard? You've never heard of them? Is there a third Epiclesis in the Mass? There I, I don't know. That's a question for Dr. McNamara. I'm an architectural historian. That's a question oh, for Chris Carson, who was too lazy to drive four hours. But to, the, uh, but to the point, maybe that's the last thing. Slacker. I, uh, about the whole heavenly, earthly thing going on in the Mass. Uh, just this morning... So I'm on a little staycation right now. I've, we did. We finally finished Easter and then confirmations and first communion. So I'm sort of taking the week off. And uh, I said mass by myself in my room today. And there are certain dialogues that you don't say. There are norms for a priest celebrating mass individually. Uh, so, for instance, you don't you don't say pray, brethren, that my sacrifice and yours may. But I usually say them in my heart. Um, but there are parts like the entire from the preface on to the end of the Eucharistic prayer you say all that stuff so the at, at the communion rite you say the peace of the Lord be with you all who answers you I always in that moment I don't ever think about it until the moment but that's when I realize usually I'm in the presence of the angels and saints mm-hmm. uh, whoa that I'm saying that that's to them, deep the peace of the Lord be with you always uh, so that's not just me saying hey peace yo <laughs> That's uh, what's just happened here on this altar is the only source of peace in the world. Lamb of God, who take away the sins of the world, grant us peace. The peace that the world cannot give, no politician, no, no <laughs> anything. That even though I'm by myself in my room wearing Birkenstocks uh, and shorts underneath my Alban vestments, that this, what's happening here, like Thomas Merton said about Gethsemane, that the entire uh, United States revolved around what was happening there because that's where... God was coming into the world through the mass, through the life of prayer, through that, uh, that that's real. Heaven does meet earth in the mass. Yeah. There's a lecture on our other podcast link for the liturgical Institute by, uh, Bishop Sarton before he moved to Seattle and he's called liturgy and the new evangelization. And he makes that point that the mass being said throughout the world keeps the whole world in mm-hmm. balance and existence because what would we be without the grace of God? How, how could we exist? How we would just get more and more and more disordered. 
And basically what we wanted to be is ordered and glorified. I, this is kind of the great malaise that all the millennials have. Oh, everything's no good. Everything stinks. You know, environment, politics, we can't believe in anything. The only answer to that is something beyond human capacity to fix things. That's the life of God. And we get that primarily in the privileged way through the liturgy. Mm-hmm. And strangely, that's the thing everybody runs from. when the thing, What they want in the depths of their heart is the thing they won't go mm-hmm. take from. Well, you were talking even in the beginning about people seeing, you know, a priest playing a guitar or playing frisbee or all these things, you know, and that's actually, I'm seeing a lot of young people really drawn to that because it's the only thing that has, is rooted in truth and beauty, but then it's also kind of radical. And, you know, younger adults, millennials, they want like that radical stuff. They want to listen to vinyl because nobody listens to vinyl mm-hmm. and they want to be like original. Well, what's more original than the things that are happening in the Catholic Church, you know? Right, countercultural, but also authentic. That's the thing. And mm-hmm. the question is, how do you make the authenticity knowable and likable without selling it out? So I think that's where love really comes in. You know, if someone loves you, then you trust them because you know they're not to, out to take your stuff or hurt you. And so, oh, you're, you seem pretty grounded. You seem to love me. What, what do you got going on? How can I get some of that too? So, mm-hmm. you know, the angry kind of liturgy war types of, oh, you, you're wrong, you're stupid. That, that's not a Christian message. But mm-hmm. And we most definitely never do that, right, Dennis? Well, we never do. But right. I mean, that's, that's part of the liturgical institute's thing. <laughs> I mean, Jesse's joking, but I mean, we try to stay away from that stuff intentionally. You know, right. this is sort of the language of Pope Francis, and sometimes it can be a little irritating because you want to go out and fight the, the culture wars and let's talk about this and that, but screaming at people doesn't do it. You know, what's mm-hmm. the big picture? You, you can find happiness, peace, and joy. And when you do that, something like abortion won't even be on your radar screen as opposed to, you, sinner, cut this out, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes you want to go out and get bare knuckles fight but bare fights don't make friends <laughs> they right. make i didn't even think that bears had knuckles so i'm oh. really confused huh? oh. uh, <laughs> but i know we're probably running out of time there's something i, I want to talk about here too which is the distinction between the ordained priesthood and the priesthood of the baptized i think if anybody thinks of that at all sometimes they get some confusion there you have anything to say about that Father that Connor, they're different. Put you on the spot. Oh, they're different. Great. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're different in a way, but they're also the same. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the question about what a priest does is that they offer sacrifice. And so in the ancient world, unless you were a priest, you couldn't offer sacrifice. You weren't hmm. worthy of offering sacrifice. Is that so? I never I never knew that. Right. So the priest did it for the people. Oh, that's right. You were t- you told me uh, one time that the priest goes into the temple with all of the 12 stones of the tribes of Israel, right. and he offers all of them you know, with him in his sacrifice. And that happened like once a year or something like that. Right. In the Feast of Atonement, the high right. priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Yom Kippur. Is that the Day of Atonement? I think it is. I always, I, I always, always know it in English school. and I know it in Hebrew, but I don't mm-hmm. know how they correspond. But anyway, the people weren't really considered offering sacrifice. Like most primitive societies, you know, there's sort of the person who's the wisdom figure and they give them something to offer to the gods and at the volcano or whatever, and then they run away fast so they don't get smashed to bits <laughs> by making the god angry. Um, but in the Christian notion, baptized people are priests, so they can offer the sacrifice as well. Mm-hmm. Which, but they're not all ordained priests. They can offer the sacrifice of themselves and the people that they have dominion over. So a person has dominion over their own 
body. A father has dominion over his own family or mother. Um, but they well, can't, I better tell Kim that. Yeah, I didn't know right. that. <laughs> but uh, they can't offer the, they can't offer their neighbor. They can't offer everybody in the parish. The priest then has the headship over that larger body. So he takes all of their individual offerings and gathers them up and then offers them as the Can family. I do that for my family? When I go to Mass, I can offer my family as the as the having dominion over my family put agnes in the chalice wow in your heart i've not, never not done that and i'm gonna do that now that's really cool yeah yeah and my my brother-in-law uh, my oldest niece now has just turned 17 i don't think she has any interest in being a nun but my brother-in-law thought that would be nice when she was little so he actually took her to church one day outside of mass and brought her up to the altar and <laughs> offered her to god saying please wow do what you want with my daughter you know in an ancient society they would have ripped her heart out and you know offered it to the evil angry gods who were going to destroy the world mm-hmm. we don't have to do that right because the offering's done uh, but the way it gets applied to us the way we get conformed is we offer ourselves mm-hmm. then those who have that's what all sacrifice was meant to represent anyway you, god didn't want goats he says as much in the psalms he wanted hearts um right. and then your sacrifice will be acceptable exactly so it's not lack of sacrifice and that's it dude sacrifice. all the, the most misunderstandings about the priesthood as this power structure and it's not fair that not everybody gets to be a priest and blah 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 it's all this misunderstanding of what the purpose of all priesthood and all religion is uh, which is the divinization we're not called to not everybody's called to be priests everybody's called to be saints and the ministerial priesthood is in the service of the priesthood of the baptized uh, I don't make sense my life doesn't make sense if there aren't people to sanctify govern and teach um, and therefore I am the slave of the slaves of God, you know. Um, Whoa! Right, you would sanct- you Jesse would sanctify and govern Save your, your daughter. Right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you would you you told me. Believe today. me, it feels that way sometimes that you you're just at you're at everybody's service, um, and that's exactly the right way it should be. You know, that's how I become fully alive. How I become who I'm supposed to be, uh, and divinize myself because my my job is not just to be a priest; it's to be a saint. Uh, and this happens to be the way that God called me and others to be saints. But um, I, I think to myself, when I get to heaven, I want there to be a bunch of people waiting at the gate to say, let him in, he's our priest. Cool. And that's, the, uh, that's how I felt when Cardinal George died, was that uh, you know, I was pleading for him to God say he's my you know he ordained me a priest he's my priest you know let him in and i think that for a lot of priests and fathers and mothers and people who have guided us and taught us and done and sanctified us in different ways that that is uh this catholic idea of being saved in community that you you're not just getting yourself up there you're taking a bunch of people with you and the priesthood is a particularly visible way of experiencing that Right, here's your St. Irenaeus, uh, final exam. The glory of God is? Man fully alive. Man or humanity fully alive. Right? How, do, how do people become fully alive? By encountering God and radically rearranging their life, the direction of their life toward him. In the sacramental life of the church, right? Mm-hmm. We need priests for that. We need mm-hmm. bishops to head that body. 
And how can they believe if they've never heard? And how can they hear if there's no one to preach? Exactly. This is what the catechism calls the You're welcome the divine. for giving you somebody to preach to. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. so it's the most oh, I could do. This is a perfect chance to talk about Downton Abbey again. Jesse loves when I talk <laughs> about Downton Abbey. But uh, there's Daisy the maid, you know, and she marries the soldier guy. And then the father, he dies in the war. And the father. Spoiler alert. Gosh, the, dude. The father says to this, I'm only on this season was, two. Oh, well, anyway, the, the father says to her without my, he said all of his other kids are dead. Without her, he'd have no one to pray for. He says like he just mm. knew his vocation was to pray for his kids he didn't have any other living kids it was really nice Hmm. you know without us lay people you'd have no one to offer mass with and and, without you we would have nobody to have the sac to give us the sacraments right this is what the catechism calls the divine pedagogy of salvation it's god's method for saving us it's not Mm -hmm. that complicated even though it's very sublime and he purposely made us need each other so that we couldn't all just go off into the woods with our Bibles and get saved. I need you, we, Father Conrad. We have to all come back into this messy thing called the body of Christ and hash it out together. Am I right? You the are The body right. of Christ is where salvation happens. And a lot of times it could be, the, the old joke is, God, I could do so much good thing, so much good for you if your people would leave me alone. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> that's not how it works. <laughs> right, think of all the volunteer work you could do, Jesse, for Christian causes if you didn't have kids to take care of. I'm basically volunteering here, okay? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, who pays you at home to change diapers? Nobody, yeah, but nobody. you know, that your daughter needs you to bring her to holiness, and you need her to bring you to holiness. You think anybody's still listening? I'm listening. So. That's all I'm at. Anyway. Well, you know, this is a great convergence of a three. Say something about Three Dogs North podcast. Listen to Three Dogs North podcast, threedogsnorth.com. Review us on iTunes. It's just three dudes, myself, now Deacon Rob Johnson, and seminarian Michael Metz. Soon, Soon to be Deacon, Deacon yeah. Michael Metz, uh, talking about what it's like. You want to hear my favorite dog joke? Mm-hmm. A three-legged dog walks into a bar and says, I'm looking for the man who shot my paw. Oh. That, doesn't your logo have a dog with three legs? It looks like it has three legs, but it's because it's a silhouette. It's a dog ready to play. Mm-hmm. Okay, all right. Well, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dennis, I think it's time to answer a liturgy question. Let us do it. So why go to the Liturgical Institute? Well, if you want to serve the church and do liturgical studies from the heart of the church, you won't find any place quite like this. This place is faithful to the magisterium, but it's a dynamic orthodoxy, not dry. And at the same time, it not only makes the faith come alive, it also empowers you to help that be the experience for others as well. Hi, I'm Dr. Scott Hahn, and I want to warmly recommend the Liturgical Institute for your consideration. Pray about going and studying and sharing the richness of our living tradition. Moses, Moses, why do you question me? Why do you care? Today, we have a similar debate over this. Anyone know what this is, class? Anyone? All right, so we have a special guest answering a liturgy question this week. Uh, Father Connor Danstrom decided to stick with us and help us answer this question. And we have a question from Tim. Um, it's a very interesting question. But Can Tim's- we call him Rudiger? No, this person has a name. His name is Tim. We don't need to use the Rudiger form of the name. So uh, Tim says, as a rugged individualist, sorry, as rugged individualist Americans, we might have a tough time believing that we ought to bow down before anything. But let's say we figured out that God as our maker actually does merit worship with our whole mind, body, and spirit. I presume our clearest opportunity for this is during mass. 
But what are we doing with our mind, our will, and our heart as we do the actions of the Mass? What is our whole internal state as we worship? How is it different from praise? And how is it different from adoration? I realize this is a very modern question, but humor me. So, uh, Father Connor Danstrom, we decided to keep you on because I think you would have some really good insights. But, Dennis, do you want to start? Sure, sure. I mean, a lot of questions there and a lot of philosophical questions. I like that. Um, you know, the, the nature of the Mass, like what, what you ought to do always grows out of the nature of the thing. This is, you know what word that is, Jesse. Of course Ontology. You, ontology, right? So yeah. the nature of the thing tells you how you should do what if that If you're thing ever is. talking about things, I think the go-to word is ontology. Yes, that's what well, I've learned. And that's most everything, yeah. Everything. So when you ask about what's the nature of the Mass, well, it's a corporate act, right? Many members of the mystical body are doing one thing, and they're, they're joining it to the intentions of the head, who is Christ, and that's sacramentalized by, the, sacramentalized by the priest, and then the members are sacramentalized by the people. And so uh, it's a corporate act of offering of the self. And so by nature, liturgy is going to demand not rugged individualism in the proper sense. It's going it, the individual member does what their part is, but they do it together as a as a body. Like if your fingers decided to do what they wanted and didn't serve the rest of your body when you that try. would be really weird, right? And so that's not the way. Worship, There's a movie about uh, that called Idle Hands. I think I don't know. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and the job then is to be Christ, be grafted onto the mystical body, and let what happened to Christ happen to you. So you offer yourself as a sacrifice. There's he asked about will. Give up your will. But first of all, you desire and you will to be transformed. You will yourself to be offered. Then you give your heart, your mind, your intellect. That's all what's called interior participation. And so all the documents of the 20th century, including Vatican II, say interior participation is always primary because you could do the exterior stuff and not mean any of it. That's, that's grounds for annulment, right? Have all the interior stuff and not do the exterior. It's sort of incomplete. That's not full participation. But it's, it, you would have an integritas problem. Well, you would have a wholeness problem all the way mm-hmm. back to our beauty episode 25. What about a claritas problem? Well, that's a claritas pro- clarity problem too. If you're not doing it, it can't be known. And so the ontology of things not revealed. Oh, gosh, somebody... We're just feeding you. Oh gosh, feed him. I know it's like it's like intellectual sugar. Feed me, me. Seymour. (laughs) So the interior participation is primary, and that participation is surrendering to God, so He can make you better. If you have a boo boo and you're three years old, you surrender to Dad's, you know, arms to stop your crying and put give your knees so you can get a band aid. If you just say I'm going to be a rugged individualist and I'm going to sit here and cry and bleed, well, that that's not making you any better. So it does make you more of a man, though. Well, it leaves you alone and sad and oh. wounded. <laughs> and we're all alone and alienated from each other. Isn't that what a man is? <laughs> yeah, yeah that, the art of manhood is to be isolated and hurting. Um, so in that sense, yes, adoration. Sometimes you adore God. Sometimes you praise God. The glory is the hymn of praise. Eucharistic adoration is a time when you just sit alone more intimately and, and offer God yourself and delight in what he's offering you and praise him. Um, so all those things are there in the mess, and it's a, by definition a surrender. It's what it is. So, uh, Father, maybe I'll toss this to you. You can add what uh, you want to, to Dennis's comment, but maybe if you could help distinguish between praise, worship, and adoration if we need to. Sure. I don't know if I'm qualified to distinguish the words particularly well, but I think that what I'm, I'm getting even... at through that question and why he's asking that is there is a tension between the transcendence of God and the imminence of God, particularly in the mass, because you are coming into the presence of something awesome in the true sense, um, the divine presence, uh, 
mediated through the sacraments, particularly the Eucharist, but all of the sacramental elements of the Mass, um, if you understand what's happening, of course you're going to kneel and bow and beat your breast and, and acknowledge your unworthiness. Um, yet at the same time, the nearness of God, he says, take this, all of you, and eat of it, and you become what you're worshiping. This divinization thing is happening um, in the most palpable sense in the reception of the Eucharist. So God is both this huge, far-off, scary figure, but he's also this intimate thing which is closer to you than nourishment is to your bones. And so um, what I always think of is you're becoming Christ in the Mass. So what should you be doing interiorly? Um, Conforming yourself to Christ? Yeah, opening yourself up to that. And so the Our Father, the prayer that he taught us, which we say before we receive communion, is... Um, eschatological, it's Christological. You're saying because you are incorporated into the Son by your adoption and your baptism, you can call God your Father. And you can say just what he said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come. Um, it's right there in the Our Father. Our Father, which is an intimate term, who art in heaven, right? Mm -hmm. It's our Father who should, you should be on his knee in a way. But he's far away. He's, so he's God, but he's also very near at the same time. We always have to stay in between those two so that you should not be overly familiar with god um in the sense that like oh this is not a big deal you know god's merciful so i don't have to worry too much about genuflecting or taking off my hat you know that you are with your body must recognize you're in the presence of the king but at the same time be almost scandalized and overwhelmed with joy at how near he is to you and how unconditional his acceptance of you is um, so there's a certain, you can't have the resurrection without the cross and you can't have the cross without the resurrection. You got to have both the annihilation of your will, uh, but also the, um, the confidence and the faith that coming out of that annihilation, you will be reborn with your true self. Right. Bishop Barry used to say adoration comes from the word ad ora, which means to the mouth of. So it's either it's like mouth to mouth resuscitation or, or like a kiss. You're kissing God to adore him. That's you, adorable. It is adorable. <laughs> it's to mouth to mouth resuscitation, life and I like these right jokes. There. Do you want to be on Three Dogs North? Yeah, you let me know in the time. Yeah, you, you just do it for a few weeks and see what you think. <laughs> <laughs> just make them listen to the first few episodes. I, had, I did. Oh, well, I've listened to you guys. Thank you. I think Mike said that we just support his laptop. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that was your book. He, he has his laptop sitting on your book. Yeah, it holds windows open, makes yeah, right. uneven tables, keeps them from rocking. That's, <laughs> right. that's what it's good for. Beautiful windows. Though. Yeah. But the big thing for Tim's question is, yeah, corporate body, individual responsibility to surrender yourself, but together with everybody else under the headship of Christ, that's basically the logic of the Christian Do your job. Worship. Do what you're supposed to do your job. together with everybody. Excellent. Well, Tim, thank you for the question. Father Connor Danstrom, thank you for being a guest on our podcast. And don't forget to uh, subscribe to Three Dollies North. It's a great podcast. At least I can vouch for one of the people on the podcast. The, the other guys, I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. but, yeah, Mike and uh, Rob are great. Yeah, yeah. I don't know about that, but but. <laughs> <laughs> but listen to their podcast. And if you have a question for the Liturgy Guys, you can email us at questions at liturgyguys.com. Thank you and God bless. The Liturgy Guys is produced by the Liturgical Institute. If you like what you've heard today, like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. 
And be sure to check out liturgicalinstitute.org to discover more about our degree programs, public events, and publications. Refresh your soul and renew the church at what Bishop Robert Barron calls one of the very best places in the country to receive formation in the Catholic liturgical tradition. Now that's a podcast.